2: Hello and welcome to the Books Podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. In this week's show, I'm talking to two authors who I greatly admire not only for their writing, but for the way they have plucked literary triumph from the jaws of journalistic adversity. Both were once newspaper hacks like me, you see, and I hope neither will mind me pointing out that they were both nudged towards books by the attritions of a shrinking newspaper industry, losing jobs in which they were happy and apparently very successful. Olivia Lang, one-time deputy literary editor of our sister paper, The Observer, is the author of three mould-breaking works of non-fiction. But not content with charting the length of the river in which Virginia Woolf drowned herself, or tracking the lives of literature's most famous alcoholics, or exploring the role of loneliness in creativity, she has now written one of the most distinctive novels of the year, a small and piquant work of autofiction. Crudo, one reviewer wrote, is a hot, hot book. (laughs) Christina Patterson, one-time columnist for the Independent newspaper, has gone down a different route with her first book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. It's a smart improvisation on the theme of self-help literature, using her own somewhat disaster-strewn life as a stepping stone to resilience and wisdom. Welcome to both of you. Now, I'm going to start by asking each of you to um, explain your books, and then we'll open it up to a broader discussion, because different though these two might sound, I think there are lots of really intriguing similarities in your projects. Let's start with Olivia.
3: And for such a slender volume, Crudeau's really quite complicated to unravel, isn't it? It is. There's a lot going on in it. It's a seven-week real-time account of the summer of 2017. Um, and lots of it involves my life, but it's set from the perspective of a writer called Cathy, who bears all sorts of resemblances to the dead writer Kathy Acker. And it's about this person getting married, struggling with the demands of intimacy, but it's also about what it's like to live in the hyperreal, hyperviolent moment that we've suddenly found ourselves inhabiting. So will you just read us
2: the very opening paragraph? I think it's a single paragraph, just to give some indication of just what
3: I'm talking about when I say it's complicated. Cathy, by which I mean I, was getting married. Cathy, by which I mean I, had just got off a plane from New York... It was 7.45 on the 13th of May 2017. She'd been upgraded to business. She was feeling fancy. She bought two bottles of duty-free champagne and orange boxes. That was the kind of person she was going to be from now on. Cathy was met at the airport by the man she was living with. Soon to become the man she was going to marry. Soon, presumably, to become the man she had married and so on till death. In the car, the man told her that he had eaten dinner with the man she, Cathy, was sleeping with, along with a woman they both knew. They had also been drinking champagne, he told her. They laughed a lot. Cathy stopped speaking. This was the point at which her life took an abrupt turn, though in fact the man with whom she was sleeping would not break up with her for another five days, on headed writing paper. He didn't think two writers should be together. Cathy had written several books, Great expectations, blood and guts in high school. I expect you've heard of them. The man with whom she was sleeping had not written any books. Cathy was angry. I mean, I. I was angry. And then I got married.
2: <laughs> so there's a provocation in the first three lines because um, by 13th of May 2017, as you pointed out, Cathy Acker. Had been dead for twenty years. So, just tell us who this Kathy Acker is and why you're so interested in her.
3: Kathy Acker is the most spectacular writer, um, and I, I worry that she's been remembered more, if if for anything, for her appearance, which was very gripping from the off. She wore a of, Punky, punky, Vivian Westwood, lots of piercings, lots of tattoos, shaved hair. And in a way, that's problematic, because I think that's sort of disguised how incredibly exciting, radical, and of the moment her books are. They plagiarise wildly, they steal things like Don Quixote and Dickens, but they're very much addressed to a moment like ours. They're about abortion, they're about terrorism, they're about hyperviolence. And I find her such an exciting, interesting writer, and because she's such a spectacular thief, I thought perhaps I would just steal some of her biography and put it to my own ends.
2: So thievery is one of the themes of this book, isn't mm.
3: it? Yeah, it's about it's about stealing, but it's also about appropriating and reassembling. And I think we're in a cultural moment that's so much about an absence of stable identity, where there's an impossibility of having a solid individual self, that it seemed absurd to me to write a kind of book that gestures towards the realist novel. that That doesn't feel like where we are. And what I was trying to get at was what it's like to inhabit the fractured moment that we're in, where... You look on Twitter to see what your friends are doing, and you experience global holocaust, terrifying images of concentration camps.
2: But there's also the issue of how you can disappear into writing, and you, she, you, writing she can be anyone on the page the eye dissolves becomes amorphous proliferates wildly
3: and that's so much an Acker thing so whenever my character Kathy writes they write from Kathy Acker's book so I sat there going through like a magpie stealing lines and being amazed at how appropriate they were for stories about Trump or stories about Brexit and I was fascinated by the way that she does that, that she would just steal somebody else's book, but put it into the first person. So I wanted to steal elements of my life, but put it into the Cathy Acker person and see what happened, really. It felt like a fun game to play. And it's also a meditation on biography, partly. So, so you say um,
2: she was trying to remember the 1980s, particularly 1987. What did people know? What were they ignorant of? This was the problem with history. It was too easy to provide the furnishings but forget the attitudes,
3: which is Mm. so interesting. So that's about how do you inhabit the past? And this is actually a question that's been there in my books all along from the Virginia Mm. Woolf one that I wrote first, is what's it actually like to be in the present moment? We always look back at things from the historical perspective. So we always think Virginia Woolf's life is tracking towards a suicide, and yet she's living constantly with her nose pressed up against the present moment, like we all do. And I was also so aware that that summer in particular was going to be historicised very quickly and was going to become a narrative where each event was followed sequentially by the next event. And that wasn't the experience of living it. So I was trying to write down everything every day and just see how it felt to inhabit that sort of terrifyingness. So at one point I talk about a small event in Spain that seems sort of slightly unsettling but not a big deal. And obviously that became a constitutional crisis and a major deal. And yet there was a day where it was just a little blip in the news cycle. And whether those things emerge into something enormous or just drift away seemed like something important to try and record, to try and write down.
2: And one of the issues that comes up is gender Mm. Um, and I'm really interested in this because because you place in Cathy's mind a sort of a refusal to have a stable I- gender identity. But that is also a current concern, isn't its is that mm. does, When you talk about the possibility of inhabiting the 1980s, I don't remember that being an, a possibility in the 1980s.
3: It's interesting because obviously there's all sorts of stuff about my own sense of gender in the character of Cathy, but also a lot of it is very closely drawn from Cathy Acker herself. And she's the one who said when she had breast cancer locked them both off I don't care I always wanted to be a boy and that's something that I felt too so there are these moments where I can use her written record to say things about myself or vice versa um, and obviously we're in a very different gender moment now we're in a moment of gender fluidity and that's becoming codified in a way that's very different from the 80s but you know I grew up in a lesbian family in the 80s I, I remember it rather differently to how people in maybe more conventional families did so that sense of gender fluidity is what I grew up with as well very much okay I'm now going to park
2: Kathy Acker (laughs) stroke Olivia Lang there and I'm going to move now to Christina Patterson Christina as I said the art of not falling apart it sets itself
4: up through that title as a self-help book which is not really what it is no it it, it (laughs) absolutely isn't if anything it's an anti-self-help book well there was meant to be a kind of play on art because Obviously, there isn't an art. I mean, there is no formula in not falling apart. Life is an art, how we deal with what life throws at us is an art and I was kind of playing on genre so the book is what publishers helpfully call generically unstable because it's essentially it's a a kind of mix of memoir and interviews and I suppose in another sense you referred to the fact that I I'm a journalist and I was kind of wanting to draw on my particular journalistic skills and experience which were writing columns, doing interviews. So in one sense, the book is a kind of mix of a column, a rather confessional column, and interspersed with lots of interviews because I've, what I've done is woven together my own experience over roughly two years, but with lots of retrospective stuff woven into it with interviews with about 20 or 30 people in different situations in a three-part structure. So yes, it's, um, it, it does sound like a self-help book and helpfully lots of bookshops are sticking it in practically in the witchcraft section of their bookshop. Yeah, it's like I, I remember, <laughs> I <know. laughs> Shirley Williams is um, climbing the bookshelves. Her memoir being stacked in in the mountaineering section of a well-known bookshelf. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I'd had I just had yet another email from someone from a guy who said. He'd, for the first time in his life, he'd stayed up all night to read a book, which I was very flattered by. And then the next day he said, but I went into my local Waterstones and they didn't have it. And um, so I forced myself to do that thing, which, you know, you never want to do, which is, you know, you kind of skulk into a Waterstones. And I skulked into a Waterstones, which had better remain nameless, passed piles of books by people I know, piles of books I'd recently re- reviewed, couldn't find my book anywhere, you know, kind of crept up to the uh, the assistant and said, you know, do you have this book? Uh, which by the way is mine and she said um, she looked it up and she said oh we wouldn't stock a book like that and I said a book like what and she said self-development and I thought oh I didn't know I'd written a book about self-development so that was not one of the finer moments post-publication but and I'm dying to read Olivia's book really dying to read it but part of this was absolutely about playing with genre that was part of the idea of it yeah Your persona should we say
2: the you in this book since we're talking about the artfulness of of self-representation Is pretty damn accident prone. (laughs) I mean, you've had a—you have cancer. Your father dies. Your sister dies. Mm. You lose your job under horrible
4: circumstances Mm. at just the wrong moment. Yes. (laughs)
2: Um, Is this a sort of ramping
4: up? No, the horrors. No, no, no. no. I have to say that when we're talking about fictionalizing, I have done no fictionalizing of my life at all. From that point of view, I'm clearly a stolidly literal-minded person (laughs) because the—it's not a persona. It is absolutely me. And. There's the odd interview where I have changed the odd detail, which I do say in the book, and, and a few names have been changed. But it is, although the, the genre is kind of playing with, you know, there is some art in the genre and I hope some art in the writing and the form factually in terms of my life it is absolutely accurate and I mean obviously it's my life so it feels completely normal to me but if it seems accident prone to someone else then I just have to say I've had a rather accident prone life.
2: But it's not only your life is it the interviewees that you pick out have had really difficult times I mean one one of whom is Frida Hughes who yes. you know who's the as the daughter of Ted Hughes and yes. Sylvia Plath could hardly have had a more traumatic childhood in some ways.
4: No, well, I mean, I was incredibly pleased that she agreed to talk to me. And there was a a moment talking to her when I had goose flesh, actually, when she was telling me about how she actually remembered being in the car when Sylvia Plath had killed herself and she was in the car with these two adults and she didn't recognize her father Ted Hughes and she said for years she did she thought he wasn't her father for years she thought she was adopted and for me that was a kind of as a, obviously a poetry buff and somebody who used to run the poetry society a kind of incredible moment when you think oh my goodness I'm speaking to the daughter of one of the most famous poets of the 20th century and she has just told me something I didn't know before she certainly has had what you might call a very accident prone life But, you know, all of the people in the book, nearly all of them are people I know. Many of them are friends. Some of them I know extremely well. Some of them I came across and don't know all that well. But there are also some friends of my parents who lost not one son but two. And... So these are not you know, I didn't go to some special institution for accident prone people. (laughs) You know, these are just people I've met in the course of my life. I think the fact is that everybody has clearly, you know, I mean, by definition, by being alive, we have problems that go, you know, we all have things that go wrong in our lives. I think as you get older you meet you clearly have more of them. And I do remember in my mid twenties when I was literally crippled with an autoimmune disease called lupus, as you are when you're 24, and uh, you know everything. Um, I remember meeting these people, and the worst thing that would have happened to them in their life would be that they got a two-one instead of a first. You know, and and uh, I remember you know trying to you know smile and you know nod, and thinking seriously. But we are into kind of hashtag first world problems territory here, aren't we? Because obviously you know on the one hand, those of us who live in this country are incredibly privileged, etc., etc., and On the other hand, we can all have enormous suffering. And the other thing is that our suffering, the depth of our pain, is not correlated to the events in our lives. So you can have, I had a very severe acne uh, throughout my late teens and my early 20s. And I found that just as terrible as some of the other things that, you know, theoretically should have been worse because I felt ugly ugly and disgusting as many people with acne do and there are very high levels of people who are suicidal with acne for example so I think we make the mistake of thinking because you've had dramatic things go wrong in your life your pain is worse.
2: Now at the beginning I'd set it up as a journey towards resilience and, and it is all these people that you interview have found some sort of way of dealing with what life has thrown at them. And in Mm. your case, you claim the power of anger. That's one thing. Mm. You love a glass of wine. Mm. You like parties. Mm. You don't like men much.
4: It's not true, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to tolerate them. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no you, you just—you've you just, just met a few,
2: a, a few bounders in your time. <laughs>
4: exactly. No, no, I don't. Uh, I, that's absolutely not true. I do like men, and nowadays I would say I almost like men as much as I like women, which is a, you know quite a shift for me. I've met some in my time. I mean, you know, all of us have worked as journalists. And we all know that uh, journalism is a newspaper's a very male-dominated trade. And there's a lot of testosterone, a lot of strutting around, a lot of diktat. And that, for me, was a little bit of a shock when I joined the paper. Uh, I worked at The Independent for 10 years. But I did... Enjoy it, and um, most of the people I worked with were absolutely lovely. And then in the last year or so, a few of them weren't, and obviously they will remain nameless. (laughs) But you know, allegations, 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 etc. But generally speaking, and I chose badly on the romantic front. Unfortunately, I had a tendency to be attracted to charming narcissists who, you know, didn't bear much relation to Mother Teresa, and that was a mistake. But there are lots of lovely blokes in the world. And I know lots of lovely blokes and I enjoy the company of blokes. So it's absolutely not fair to say I don't like men. <laughs> fair enough. Right. So now we're going to I'm going to bring Livia back in on that point, which has nothing to do with your
2: attitude to lovely blokes, Olivia. I can assure you. It's um, it's uh, it's on the, this issue of mixing genres. What do we call your your novel? It's auto fiction. Biofiction.
3: I invented biofiction this morning. Did you? Yeah, I invented it this morning. I was quite proud of that because <laughs> I thought it isn't really. It is autofiction. It is biofiction. It is fiction. biography, perhaps. It's not that fictionalized. I mean, it's it's a complex net of things, as all my books are. And I find the whole question, not your question personally, but the general question of what genre does this book fit into, so frustrating and tiresome that I feel like. I write books that have elements of memoir or they have elements of travel writing or they have elements of biography and cultural criticism. And that is the book. And there's always some suggestion of, especially in reviews, oh, if only this was just a biography, I think it would be great. And somebody else saying, well, I wish it was a memoir. And that that always feels like really missing the point that the books that feel most interesting to me, most exciting to me are the ones that do marry lots of different kinds of writing together.
2: And one one of those writers is Chris Krauss, who mm. to, who wrote a biography of Kathy Acker, which you've, is one of your source. You, you cite as one of your source materials yeah. for this.
3: Yeah, and Chris Krauss is such, an, such a good example with I Love Dick, which is the sort of, I know she doesn't like the word autofiction, but it is very much an autofiction, that it uses elements of her life. It turns it into a novelistic structure, but actually it contains, when you look at it again, and I'm always surprised when I get go back to it it contains so much about other artists it contains so much about politics there are huge sort of extended riffs about war and violence in latin america that you absolutely forget are there because you're sort of so bewitched by the story of her stalking poor old dick that that sort of layering and mixing together makes a book feel alive to me in a way that reading a realist novel or indeed a biography i'd find quite frustrating in this week's Extra Books podcast, we're treating you to a reading by Bill Nye of the Moomin short story, The Invisible Child, by Tove Jansson, in association with Oxfam. Here's a little extract.
1: The bell came tinkling downstairs, one step at a time, with a small pause between each step. Moomintroll had waited for it all morning. But the silver bell wasn't the exciting thing. That was the pause... Ninny's paws were coming down the steps. They were very small, with anxiously bunched toes. Nothing else of Ninny was visible. It was very odd. Moomintroll drew back behind the porcelain stove and stared bewitchedly at the paws that passed him on their way to the veranda. Now she served herself some tea. The cup was raised in the air and sank back again. She ate some bread and butter and marmalade. Then the cup and saucer drifted away to the kitchen, were washed and put away in the closet. You see, Ninny was a very orderly little child.
3: To hear the full story, go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
3: You didn't expect... (laughs) I I wasn't writing a novel. You didn't intend to... No, I mean, I was writing a nonfiction book about violence and bodies and I've been trying to write it for quite a long time and I was aware that I was struggling and part of why I was struggling was because the news cycle was changing so fast, the conditions that I was trying to write about were changing so fast that I felt like I couldn't find the stable point from which to report, that that's something that I need in a book is to sort of feel like I've got a grasp of... The ground before I start surveying it and I didn't and so that sort of was building up a-, a tension and I was reading Chris Krause's book about Kathy Acker and reading again about how Kathy appropriated and something about those two things sort of came together and I started thinking well what if I just write down everything that's happening but from this Cathy perspective and see what happens and immediately realized okay I've hit on a form that is allowing me to say what it feels like to live in this summer which I don't know about you but I spent it in anxiety, terror, despair, rage, fury as well as dealing with the sort of new marriage intimacy problems that I was simultaneously experiencing. So it was a form that let me deal with both of those things and i I wasn't planning on publishing it but I had two rules which were that I had to write at least once a day and I wasn't allowed to edit or even read back. So this is basically completely I mean it has had a couple of legal reads and a few edits but basically it's still incredibly raw hence the title crudo and it is just a very loyal document to what those seven weeks were like and at the end I finished it in Heathrow airport and sent it to my agent and got on a flight thinking well that's that's that done, but I I still wasn't thinking that it would become a book until it's so interesting because it seems so composed. It's sort of I, I'm in awe. <laughs> it's not yeah. composed. It's very discombobulated. It's the record of a very discombobulated psyche.
2: And now Christina is nodding furiously over there on that microphone. And you tell us a little bit about how you came to choose this particular form. I mean, I'm just very yes. interested in why writers choose particular forms at particular times. Yes,
4: it's such a hard question to answer because I it kind of. Since I left The Independent and uh, editors have said to me, so how are you going to write this piece? And I've thought, sorry, I never, ever have planned structure of anything in advance. So things emerge. And when I wrote, I used to write, I wrote a column twice a week for years. And readers would say, oh, you know, you took me on a journey and I didn't know where we were going to end. And I thought, well, that's because I didn't know where we were going to end. And I do think writers work in different ways. Some, obviously, uh, crime writers, generally speaking, I imagine have to plot very carefully that's not the way I work, though I did I did try to come up with a structure before for this, because when you go from writing maximum 4,000 word pieces to 100,000, obviously, you know, it helps to have a bit of planned structure. I suppose it really is a hard question to answer because it was a kind of unconscious. I didn't just write it from scratch for 100,000 words and see where it went, but I didn't kind of consciously think, what's the structure going to be? I suppose I thought, this will start with my own voice and experience, and I will weave in and out of other people's stories. And that was partly A nervousness about memoir. I've been trying to write a memoir for years. I have, in fact, written a memoir, which I haven't shown to any publishers. And if I ever write that, it will be in a different form, and I'll probably have to rewrite it from scratch. And I have cannibalized little bits of it for this book. But it was partly a kind of sense that we are in such a solipsistic culture now that. I feel nervous about writing a book that's all about me and I don't want this book to be all about me. I want it to be layered with other people's lives. So this felt like a way to solve that problem, I suppose. Is there an extent to which both of these books are like,
2: they're provocations in a way, aren't they? I mean, because we know that People always say, oh, it's women only write autobiographically, it's all domestic, it's minor. I'm you're rolling you're, you're, my you're, eyes
3: wildly. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. But you're flirting with that, aren't you? You're, you're daring anybody to say that of these books.
3: Yes, yes, I suppose so, because it seems so, what, you're not allowed to use that territory at all in case somebody comes and criticises you because of your gender or because of how they assume your gender. I, I find that so frustrating and tedious. It seems incredibly exciting to me to be able to report on the ways in which personal life and political life intersect and to be able to use an eye in all sorts of different ways. It's such a flexible weapon, an eye. It doesn't have to be about the interior of the self in a narcissistic way. It can just be a set of eyes. It can just allow you to bring a reader in very close. But then, on the other hand, it can be a way to talk about very private experience. So it it seems like, why would you surrender this super useful tool just because there's a danger that you come across as a narcissistic woman?
4: That seems ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Another thing I've sort of felt I've encountered a little bit since, um, since leaving The Independent is editors who want you to I mean I'm happy to write personally as long as I'm the one who gets to control you know the kind of the tone and the shape of the piece but this idea that if you're a woman over 45 then obviously you're a middle-aged woman who wants to write you know confessional pieces about how hard it is to catch a man or whatever else it might be and One of the themes of my book is about being single for most of my adult life. And, you know, people have referred to Bridget Jones and that's fine up to a point. I think um, Helen Fielding did a very important and interesting thing with Bridget Jones in acknowledging a phenomenon of our times, which is, among other things, the mismatch between educated, successful, high achieving women and the challenge of finding if you're looking for a male partner, a male partner who is not intimidated by that, that's a perfectly acceptable thing. But you know, personally, I'm not very interested in the domestic. You know, I've never lived with someone um, apart from with you know flatmates when I was young. I hate cooking. Um, I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm interested in lots of trivial stuff, but broadly, I'm interested in politics and ideas. And I bitterly resented, as a journalist, being thrust into the kind of soft territory and suddenly feeling that you're not allowed to write politics anymore. I've really felt that very strongly in the last five years. My book doesn't touch on politics. I mean, I hope that my next book might, in some way, if I get to write one and if someone will publish it, etc., etc., she says nervously. <laughs> but I I really, really, really resent that sense that as a woman, you have to do the domestic stuff. And, you know, even I've had a review in which I felt, in fact, it wasn't me, but a friend pointed out, she said, someone, this person is reviewing your life, your lifestyle. And, And I thought, yes, actually, that seems to me the case in this particular review. And I reserve the right not to have my lifestyle reviewed you know we are writers i don't even see i mean this sounds like a ridiculous thing to say in the age of me too and possibly a naive thing to say but i never really felt i looked at the world through a particularly gendered gaze because i didn't have children i didn't have a husband i didn't you know i stayed late at the office every night because that's what it seemed to me it took to do the job obviously i was intensely aware that if you looked at the the women who were in high, at relatively senior levels on my newspaper, funnily enough, they were nearly all single without children. Clearly, that is a major problem. But did I go around thinking, oh, I'm being really discriminated against here because I'm a woman? I absolutely didn't. I was, you know, I've never, I don't know, I just, I think I'm a person. <laughs> and um, and the, I, people have said, someone said to me the other day, this is a, a book for, you know, for people who read Stylist and And I thought, really? A, I've never read Stylist. For women who read Stylist, I thought, A, I've never read Stylist, but, you know, that sounds interesting enough. And B, it's not for women. It's for human beings. Why do we have to keep banging on about people's gender all the time? So that makes me cross, actually. Yeah, and what's
2: interesting about these two books and why I have this brainwave of bringing you in together is actually they read brilliantly as a pair. (laughs) They're they're Mm. doing very different things, but the the intellectual project in some ways is is Mm. similar well, I'm um, and absolutely dying yeah. to read your we'll exchange. <laughs> we'll have to do a quick exchange after, yeah. this pod, after we've left this podcast. Exactly. You know? Well, thank you very much both for coming in. And um, all I can say is I would urge anyone to read both the novel and the non-fiction <laughs> Self-Help Not <laughs> Book. I was speaking with Olivia Lang and Christina Patterson. Crudo is published by Picador and The Art of Not Falling Apart is published by Atlantic Books. Both are out now. Next week, summer has definitely begun here in the United Kingdom, so it's time for our annual catch-up on what you should read, what they want you to read, and what you actually are reading. Notepads at the ready. We'll have all the best books to accompany you on your holidays. And do please subscribe and review us on your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast page at theguardian.com slash bookspodcast. As always, if you'd prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Tresilian. thanks for listening, and goodbye. podcasts from The
1: Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.